Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Well, I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say, physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello, this week we're getting ready for the World Cup naked scientist style. From the physics of football to the psychology of being a fan, plus, did Cambridge actually invent football? And in the news, why living with others can stave off dementia, the strange objects that scientists have spotted on the surface of Pluto, and do sharks really mistake surface for seals? I'm Katie Haler. I'm Chris Smith, and this is The Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up, one of the realities of getting older is that things can slow down a bit, and that goes for our memories too. But there might be a way to knock age-related cognitive decline on the head, and that is by keeping in close contact with your friends. Liz Kirby. We know that our memory and our cognition declines as we age, and this is just a normal thing that happens. But there's a lot of factors that can help prevent that or at least slow it. We know things like exercise or even dietary restriction can help slow this decline in memory function. And there's a lot of evidence in humans that having lots of friends, lots of social contacts can also slow this decline. But in humans, it's hard to tell if having more friends prevents memory decline or if people who have declining memory tend to withdraw from their friends. We can't figure out which which is causing what. So I set out to determine this in animals, where we can do things like control how many social contacts an animal has. And which animals were you looking at? We used normal adult aging mice. But mice don't traditionally go into care homes or go to church, sing in choirs and join orchestras and things. So how do you actually do the experiment so that you get something meaningful from the mice? With mice, we can essentially control how many roommates they have. They can live with, in our case, we put them in pairs, two mice. So that's our low level of social contact, our old couples. Or they can live in large groups. And in this case, we put seven mice in a cage. So they have sort of a a larger community. At the end of three months, living either in small group pairs or the large groups, seven mice per cage, we measured their memory function. And in particular, we measured memory that depends on a brain area called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is incredibly important for forming new memories, and it's the area of your brain that deteriorates probably the most with age and definitely very prominently with Alzheimer's disease. And you think that these memory tasks that you set for the mice are a reasonable proxy for how a human would perform? Everything we know about these memory tasks in mice versus humans suggests that they're testing very similar parts of the brain. With mice, the particular task that we used was called a novel object placement task. The mice were put into an arena with two objects, and they got to get to know those objects, explore them. They were taken out of the arena, and then after a delay, they were put back in it. The same two objects were there, but one of them had moved. Mice prefer to spend time and investigate things that they think are different. So if they remember the two objects, they should spend a lot of time with the moved object. But if they don't remember the objects, then they'll spend about the same amount of time with them. 
And what we found is the group housed mice showed much better memory for the object that moved in our memory task than the pair housed mice. And was that borne out neuroanatomically? So in other words, if we go and look now in the brains of these animals, can you see changes or differences that would be consistent with those behavioural differences? What we saw when we looked at the brains of these mice was that the group house mice had less signs of what we call neuroinflammation. This is inflammation, just like when you get sick, your immune system inflames. Your brain also shows signs like this. And this is something that happens commonly with aging. And people believe this is part of what causes your brain not to function as well. When we looked at the brains of group house mice, they had less of this neuroinflammation compared to the pair house mice. So why do you think that is? Why should hanging around with a big group of your friends make you have a less inflamed brain and therefore show less brain attrition as you age? There are a lot of theories. One of them just has to do with how hard it is to deal with other people, or in this case, other mice. If you can imagine, dealing with people every day takes a huge amount of cognitive load. It it puts a huge stress on your brain. You have to figure out what they want, what you want, what you think they think you want. And a lot of people think that this cognitive load, it's it's mental exercise, and that's what helps keeps your brain healthy. Could it not be, though, that if you're in a, a big group of animals, A, you perceive a bit of a challenge. You might think, I better keep active because I want to go and eat and someone else might steal my lunch. It may also be that you're running round more. We know that exercise is very good for the brain. There's a whole lot of other factors that could explain this, though, aren't there? There are other factors. So exercise is a possibility. We looked into that as best we could with our mice, and we didn't see any signs that they were getting more exercise. For example, they weren't any trimmer. They all showed a a relatively portly aged figure. Exercise would tend to decrease their body weight just like it would in humans. We looked for other signs such as better activity, uh, moving around more in our behavioral tasks. We didn't see anything like that. And what about sort of extrapolating this to humans? What do you think the takeaway message for aged humans or aging humans should be from what you're finding here? There certainly isn't any harm from thinking about your social contacts as you age. If you're making a choice as you age about where you live, for example, all the human evidence points to there being a positive correlation between having more contacts and preserving your cognitive function. And now our study suggests that this really actually might be causative, that you actually having more contacts actively protects your brain. So if you're making a choice about where to live, try to choose a living situation where you'll be able to maintain contact, even, for example, as your mobility decreases or as you can't drive anymore. So a retirement village rather than a retirement hermitage. (laughs) Yes, that's a great way to put it, a retirement village, a retirement community. Liz Kirby, she's at Ohio State University, and the work that she was telling me about was published in Frontiers in Ageing Neuroscience. Right, well, that's my retirement plan then. I could get it booked now, very, very far in advance. Now, one of the biggest drivers of carbon emissions and land use around the world is food production. In fact, a third of greenhouse gas emissions are from the agricultural industry, and some things are worse than others. It's been reported that beef has the highest footprint of the meats and meats are much worse for the planet than vegetables. But a new study from the University of Oxford this week has shown there's also a staggering amount of variation within products depending on the suppliers and how the farm is operated, meaning we could reduce the total emissions of the industry. Georgia Mills spoke with Joseph Poor. The initial inspiration was I wanted to understand if I could reconcile my personal consumption of animal products with a rapidly degrading global environment. I wanted to know if there were farmers out there who are producing low environmental impact foods, and if so, what could we learn from them? So we already knew that some products were worse for the environment than others, but you wanted to go one step further and find out within each range what was going on. 
Yeah, that's right. So we wanted to see the um, the range of impact between low impact producers and high impact producers with the same product, not just on greenhouse gas emissions, but on land use, water use, acidification, eutrophication, other important environmental indicators. And we also wanted to do this for the whole food supply chain. So from the clearing of land to agriculture, the production of fertilizer, right through to transport and retail. Right. So how did you get hold of this data? We use data from 720 published studies. And these studies have visited farmers and other companies in the food supply chain in countries all around the world. We brought this data together and consolidated data on 40,000 farms and 1,600 processors, packages and retailers. When you unpicked this data then, what did you find? What were the big surprises? I mean, the first thing that really stood out was the variation in environmental impact. That's both within and between products. So for staple products, say rice, a high impact farm is creating six times more greenhouse gas emissions per serving than a low impact farm. A pint of beer can create three times more emissions, use four times more land. And so these are two products that look the same in the shops, but are actually having pretty dramatically different impacts on the planet. One product that really stood out was beef. So high impact beef uses 750 meters squared of land compared to low-impact beef, which uses 15 metres squared of land. So that's a 4,900% difference. And then there are also the differences between products. Comparing, for example, high-impact beef to low-impact peas is a 25,000% difference on greenhouse gas emissions and an 11,000% difference on land use. So, yes, these are pretty vast differences. You also looked at things like tea and coffee and chocolate and all my favourite vices. So how how much have I damaged the world with all these things I love? I think it's important to have nice things in our lives. (laughs) I think if there is the potential to reduce the impacts of what we're consuming or avoid consuming a certain product, I think we should take it. In a standard bar of chocolate, about 50 grams, the lowest impact bar can effectively create zero greenhouse gas emissions versus a high impact bar creating about 6.7 kilograms of carbon dioxide equivalents. You see the same for coffee. Per cup, the difference in greenhouse gas emissions ranges from just about 80 grams of CO2 to 1.3 kilograms for a cup of coffee. And you mentioned your inspiration for doing this was uh, you were worried about your own consumption, you wanted to find out more. So how are you hoping this paper will engineer change? So we put forward a kind of integrated solution at the end and we look at how we can connect consumers with producers and create a chain of accountability throughout the food system. For producers, this is going to be about monitoring their own environmental impacts and take steps to mitigate them and reduce them. We also suggest providing incentives and diverting some agricultural subsidies to do this. Then it's about communicating information to suppliers, which could encourage more sustainable sourcing and then communicating through to consumers and actually enabling consumers to choose between products with high impact, products with low impact, but also producers with high impact and producers with low impact. So connecting the system like this, possibly through a catalyst like a product label, could see real change. Well, certainly some food for thought there. Joseph Poor from Oxford University there, and that study was out this week in Science. From what goes on on the land to what goes on in the ocean now. And it's time for this week's Myth Conception with Adam Murphy. 
Great white sharks can seem absolutely terrifying. Jaws was proof enough of that. They can be up to 6 metres long, weigh nearly 2,000 kilograms and can swim at 35 miles an hour. They are apex predators, nothing goes near them. There's an idea floating around that sharks attack surfers and other swimmers unprovoked because to the shark it looks like a seal, and a seal looks like lunch. But that's probably not true, and the reasons why might be a comfort to you. Or they might not. Is there a comforting way to be bitten by a shark? Sharks don't think we're seals. Sharks approach seals and other human-sized prey in a totally different way to how they approach us. Now, while it's possible that sharks occasionally have cases of mistaken identity when they can't see very well, in open water, when a shark hunts a seal, it torpedoes itself towards the surface in a move called a breach. The shark rocket takes out the seal before the seal has time to think, hey, what's that thing rushing towards me at tremendous speed? Meanwhile, sharks usually approach us calmly and quietly in comparison. Then, yes, they do take a bite, but not for food. It's usually because they're just curious, wondering what that thing in their backyard is, and they don't have hands to prod and poke something. Babies do that too, need to understand what something is. Are you a baby? Put it in your mouth. So sharks are just like babies, giant, serrated, tooth-filled babies. Isn't that nice? And even if they were going to attack humans for food, we're really not worth the effort. Compared to blubber-rich seals and sea lions, we're very bony things. Research published in 2016 has shown that most of the bites inflicted on servers and surfboards aren't strong enough to take out or incapacitate a seal, and sharks are very good at doing that. That idea is supported by Peter Klimley from the UC Davis College of Wildlife, Fish and Conservation Biology, and was supported by R. Aidan Martin, former director of the ReefQuest Centre for Shark Research in Vancouver, Canada, before his death in 2007. There is a theory that sharks will make an initial bite, swim off, and wait for the thing to bleed out. But they tend to use that for large prey. Elephant seal large, and we are not that large. So unless they're desperate, they don't think we're seals, and they want to investigate more than they want to hurt us. Sadly, the sentiment is not returned. In 2013, humans were killing 100 million sharks a year, which is roughly 200 every minute. That means the great white shark is now listed as vulnerable. And great whites can take up to 30 years to be able to reproduce, making it that much harder for them to replace their population. Maybe it's time we start looking after them and stop being so afraid of them. And we should probably do that before we seal their fate. Thank you, Adam. And if there's some suspicious sounding science you've come across, send it in to chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll take a look. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Katie Haler. Still to come, what have scientists spotted on the surface of Pluto and is there a gene for footballing? We'll find out. Now, here's an unusual story. How a waste product from the drinks industry has turned into a way to dye your hair. Leeds University's Richard Blackburn. We got into hair dyes because I've spent my whole career working in the area of colour chemistry. Started off dyeing textiles, but then eventually got into sustainability. And we were concerned about some of the research around current existing hair dyes linked to allergic reactions and and other toxicological effects. So we really just wanted to provide an alternative. We started by, you know, really applying those principles of sustainability, green chemistry, whatever you want to call it, um, to try and find what we thought was a safer alternative. And so to do that, we looked to nature. So what are you looking for in a good dye? We want the dye to be attracted to the hair. We want it to bind 
to the hair first and foremost so that you can get a strong color we also want it to stay there we don't want it to wash out we don't want it to fade in light and obviously we want it to be safe we want it to be easy to apply uh, and for it not to uh, have any negative effects on the user or in subsequent disposal when it you know when it goes down the drain now anyone who's ever done the experiment with an italian dish and their white shirt or had children that have gone and played cricket yeah. and come home with whites that you cannot clean them for love nor money. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty obvious that nature is replete with all kinds of exciting colours that have a very close love affair with things that we don't want to become coloured. So why is this a problem, finding things that are out there, natural dyes, that, that won't have environmental hazards and will do the job you're looking for? Well, we shouldn't assume that natural equals safe. Nature spent millions of years evolving methods to stop it being eaten and to be poisonous and things like that and actually if you look at the plant kingdom there's actually actually not that many things as a percentage that you can eat first and foremost we have to know that if if we're using it from nature it's got to be safe but in terms of the ability to color hair we have to look at specific types of chemistry in nature and what chemistries have you explored here well i'll give you a great example um beetroot as you'll all be familiar with, in- incredibly intense red colour. Put that on the hair, doesn't do anything. It literally washes straight off. Whereas these these pigments that we get from the skin of a black currant, they have got a certain type of chemistry which allows them to bind very sl- strongly with protein. And hair is essentially a protein. So we thought, well, you know, let's see what happens. And we extracted certain compounds from the skin and then developed that application basically making a formulation doesn't this mean though that you end up with purple hair isn't this a bit like the hair equivalent of the model t ford of the early 1900s (laughs) you you can have any color you like as long as it's black current well unlike henry ford we're not that limited the great thing about these pigments that occur in fruits and in flowers they're called anthocyanins interestingly anthocyanin comes from the greek anthos meaning flower and cyan meaning blue which is really interesting because most of these anthocyanins in fruit certainly don't make a blue. Even a blueberry is not blue. You know, you, you crush it, it's quite purple. But what happens with these, um, with these anthocyanins is that they actually are pH sensitive. So in the plant, they tend to be more reddy and purple. And that's under very acidic conditions. Now, as soon as you actually start to change the pH, the, the colour will change. Then they go blue when they become more neutral. But you're not, you're not selling this to me, really, Richard, because I can either have purple hair or blue hair. Well, you see, the interesting thing there is that if we're going to make these colours uh, go onto the hair, we want to be able to produce a whole range of different colours. And the most difficult thing to get from nature is a blue. If we can get a blue, then that means we can combine that with a red and we can combine that with a yellow. So we can get a brown with this system. So that does have potentially genuine application then. absolutely and, and you, you can dye hair with this and it won't wash out you won't go in the bathroom and, it, and your hair color goes back to whatever you started with it's in the classification of semi-permanence which puts it at about being fast to about 12 washes and is this more sustainable in the sense that i haven't got to go and grow an enormous field full of black currants just to make hair dye well the great thing about being in the uk is that we grow a tremendous amount of black currants and over 90% of those are used for Ribena. So those are pressed for juice. And at the end of that process, 
um, essentially the pressed skins are waste material, which ordinarily were being thrown away. And that's you know how we came to this in the first instance when we were looking into nature and trying to find all the different solutions so we take those skins and extract the the pigment out of that and that's the the kind of the the science bit if you like is how how we get the uh, the pigment out and and turn that into the hair dye richard blackburn from the university of leeds and that colorful study was in the journal of agricultural and food chemistry we're heading out to the edge of our solar system and pluto often thought of as little more than a cold, barren, boring ball of rock and ice that couldn't even call itself a planet anymore. In 2015, that changed when the New Horizons probe flew past Pluto and took an awe-inspiring sequence of photos. Some of the shots that the probe sent back are of Sputnik Planitia, which is an ice field some 1,000 kilometres long. And the team analysing these images saw on them something surprisingly close to home. Adam Murphy spoke to lead author Matt Telfer to hear what they'd seen. One of the things I became fascinated in were some regular ridges on the surface of the icy plain of Sputnik Planitia, which appeared for all the world to look like dunes. So like sand dunes like we have here? Yeah, exactly. And that was one of the crazy things, because we looked at that and thought, well, this is such an amazingly different world in so many ways. We're looking at a landscape at minus 230 degrees C. And yet we have got these features, not just the dunes, which look so familiar, but we've also got mountains, we've got glaciers. We've got so many things that look so familiar in this alien environment. And what are these sand dunes made of? Because they're not made of silica like our sand is, right? No, absolutely. The sand dunes are made of primarily of methane, we believe. So the ice cap that they sit on is a mixture of nitrogen, carbon monoxide and methane ices. But the dunes themselves appear to be particularly rich in methane ice. That means they're made of what comes out of your cooker, essentially, natural gas. Essentially, yes, that's it. How do they form? How do they get there in the first place? Well, that was the bigger mystery. Once we'd identified the fact that they certainly looked like dunes, we then had to go about explaining how that could possibly be the case. Because the issue we've got is that we've got such a thin atmosphere on Pluto, we've got something like one one hundred thousandth of the atmosphere on Earth, that the question became, how is it possible to have enough wind to mobilise grains of methane ice to form dunes in the first place. And what we realised through a combination of numerical modelling and observational work was that once these grains were started to move in the air, we could keep them going. But the problem became, how did we get them going in the first place? And that, we realised, was caused by a different process. This relates to the sublimation of these mixed ices. Like when the sun hits it, it turns this nitrogen from solid nitrogen right into a gas straight away. Yes, absolutely. That's right. So because the nitrogen ice will sublimate first, as it turns into vapour in the atmosphere, it will loft, it will lift up these, these methane grains. And there's probably enough sun as well to start sublimating some of the methane. But the key is because the nitrogen will go first, it will lift these methane grains up. And then although the winds are relatively weak and relatively low speed, there's enough of them. We've done the modelling work. There's enough of that wind to keep it moving once it starts going. And do you think Pluto has much more to show us? I think there's a lot more to learn from Pluto. Of course, the the difficult bit is that that mission was 10 years in the planning, nine years in flight time. So we're looking at a 20-year lead-in time 
for a mission out to Pluto. There are no immediate plans for anything else to go back out to Pluto. So really what we've got from that amazing flyby in the summer of 2015 is is really what we've got to work with for now. One of the key things for us now is to dig further into this process of lofting grains by sublimation, which is what appears to be happening at Pluto, because that is something really new. That's that's a new process, a new mechanism that we haven't really observed elsewhere in the solar system in quite this way. Just to ask on the whole, is Pluto a planet? Where do you stand on that? <laughs> it's funny. This is a question I've been asked more than I more than I imagined. I'm not a big one for arguments. My general excuse here is to come out with, I like the term world. I'm not going to sit on the planet or the planetoid or the dwarf planet fence. I'm just going to think of it as a world because I think that encapsulates the fantastic diversity of the landscape that we see out there. It really is another world. It's not just an icy blob out in space. It's not just a snowball out in the outer reaches of the solar system. Matt Telfer there. He's at Plymouth University and that study has just been published in the journal Science. And if you'd like to find out more, all the transcripts and papers can be found on our website, nakedscientist.com slash podcasts. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Katie Haler. And now it's time to kick off the second half of this week's programme. That's right. The nations of the world are getting very excited as it's not long now until the 2018 World Cup, which will be hosted in Russia. And as scientists and geeks, our ball skills might not be up to much, but we can apply our brains to discover a bit more about the science behind the game. We'll be investigating why people are football fanatics, the best way to take a penalty, and we'll look into whether there is a footballing gene. But first up, to the physics of football. Georgia Mills went down to Parker's Peace in Cambridge to see a brand new monument to the beautiful game, and she teamed up with a footballer and an engineer, now there's a combination, to break down how we can bend it like Beckham. Um, Ruth Fox, Cambridge United midfielder. So we're standing on Parker's Piece in the heart of Cambridge and there is a there is a new addition to the field, tiny skyscraper shapes made of marble with some writing on it. So what is what is this? It's a statue to commemorate where the football rules were first written down, I believe. And I like this first rule. It's uh, 1848, the laws of the University Football Club. This club shall be called the University Football Club. That's it's kind of like Fight Club. The first rule of football club is call it football club. So Cambridge has a lot of love for football then. So we're joined by engineer extraordinaire Hugh Hunt, who's going to tell us a bit about how physics comes into it. Well, uh, football's a great game, as we know, but a ball just doesn't move in a straight line. I suppose if you're out on the International Space Station, it does. There's aerodynamics, there's spin, there's bouncing, there's all sorts of things. And so balls in the air is really interesting. Well, now I'm thinking about a football game in space, but uh, you're going to tell me a bit about how some of the physics works and Ruth is very kindly going to help us out with some, with some demos, show us the skills, because you and I, Hugh, are not so good at the actual football part. So Ruth has immediately began putting us all to shame with... Uh, with... I'm lucky if I can kick the ball once. Yeah. <laughs> So Hugh, you mentioned physics 
and football are related. So how, how do the two go hand in hand? The first thing I think is uh, spin. And the very first thing we kind of know is that if you've got a ball and you bounce it, if there's some spin on the ball, it's going to move off in a different direction. So if you're playing the game, you've got to read the spin. If you see that the ball is spinning, you've got to know that it's not just going to come straight to you. It's going to do some different things. Then if you're playing the game, you can put spin on to make it bounce in different directions. But it moves through the air, just like in... Um, in tennis or cricket, if you've got a spinning ball moving through the air that curves, bend it like Beckham, we've all heard. You can curve the ball left and right, you can curve it up and down. And Ruth, is this something you would do in a game? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, there's a variety of different passes you can use. Spinning is one of the ones that I particularly do use. Sort of switching play and pinging it sort of on the opposite wing is definitely something that I do. And free kicks as well. I always enjoy taking free kicks and... You know, you can completely sort of make the goalkeeper go absolutely the wrong way. So, yeah. <laughs> can you give me a little demo then? Uh, uh, can you bend it like Beckham for oh, us oh, now? Okay, where's he going to go? Okay, he's run off. <laughs> probably, probably a good thing. All right, we're backing up. Here we go. <laughs> Beautiful spin. And he's kicked it back. Yeah, that was a beautiful demo. The ball definitely curved through the air. So, Hugh, how is that working? Well, it's interesting. The, um, I noticed as we were playing with that that there's, there's dew on the grass. And as the ball gets wetter and heavier, um, it behaves more differently. I mean, it's, it's harder when the ball is wet. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think when it's not pumped up great, then yeah. <laughs> that's my fault. Sorry about that. I brought a half-deflated ball. Well, now that's interesting too because we think that a softer ball is, is easier because we don't like to get hurt. But the professionals like to play with a really hard ball because when you're kicking the ball, the ball squashes up, deforms a lot. And it's really quite hard to control a ball that's not round. When it's spinning, to my mind, something that's round should when it moves through the air no matter what it does it should go in a straight line because there's no sort of corners to to sort of you know like a bird would use wings to direct itself it's just a ball so how does the physics work that makes it turn around in the air well if you imagine for the moment that the ball is stationary and that the air is moving so you, it's like a wind tunnel experiment so you put the ball in 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 a certain place and you spin it what the air is going to do it's going to be dragged over the top of the ball. Moving air around the ball, well, you need forces to do that. And uh, Newton's third law of motion, that every action has an equal and opposite reaction, if there's a force required to move the air around the ball, then there's an equal and opposite force on the ball. So spinning the ball gives you a sideways force. And you can spin it one way to get a force to the left, the other way to get a force to the right, and then up and then down. I can demo that with this uh, lightweight ball. And yeah, this, you wouldn't see this on a proper football pitch. This is a nice, very light, bouncy well, red is, ball. And I can put some backspin on this ball. and, and So it slaps the ball out of the air. And it goes, well, right over its head. Yeah, um, it, it sort of went forward and then kind of yeah, stopped yeah, in midair. If you're trying to do a pass from one side of the ground to the other, you want it to get over there as quickly as possible, but you don't want it to go out of play. So you want it to dip it down. Um, so you put topspin on. And so it's the air around the ball being dragged by the movement of the ball spinning 
which then actually exerts a force on the ball and changes its direction. That's right, and it's called the Magnus effect. Does the Magnus effect come into things uh, off the football pitch? Oh, well, absolutely. Uh, there's um, a famous uh, example of this back in 1943 when um, the Dambusters did their Dambusters raid on, uh, in Germany with the bouncing bombs. And Barnes Wallace put backspin onto the bouncing bombs to enable them to bounce on water. And it was all to do with the Magnus effect. And we mentioned um, this, I thought, a very woefully um, underinflated ball. So why does having more air in a ball mean it's uh, better on a football pitch? Well, you want to have a ball that uh, doesn't lose much energy when you, when you uh, kick it. And a soft ball, when you kick it hard, I mean, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to squash up, it's going to change, it's going to become um, you know, a bit like a, a, like a donut. And the amount of energy that's lost in all that motion of the ball... Uh, the ball just doesn't go very fast, doesn't it? And it's hard to control it. You're hard to get spin on it. You don't know how it's going to behave. If the ball's nice and tight and hard, then it's much easier to control. That's right, isn't it, Ruth? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. Um, although when it's too hard, it's very painful to yeah. head. But <laughs> right. So when you have all the that much air sort of all squ- squashed up, it just doesn't allow you to compress it, yeah. which a might mean that when it hits your head your head gets compressed instead <laughs> but if it's too squishy then it's uh, that energy gets lost from the kick it's yeah, it's all about it's all about energy and it's, the design of the ball is is quite interesting the the more pressure you put into it the stronger the ball has to be which means that the materials you use you have to make the ball thicker and heavier and and just generally it's more difficult to make uh, a ball that contains high pressure. So there's, there's sort of, if you like, engineering limitations. Hugh Hunt, Cambridge University engineer there, and Ruth Fox, Keep Yuppie star and Cambridge United midfielder out on the turf with Georgia Mills. So, Chris, how are you on the Keep Yuppies? My record was, do you know what it was? Have a guess what my record for Keep Yuppies was. Ten? One. Oh, <laughs> same as mine <laughs> absolutely i'm just so i'm awful really awful i have not got a sporting gene in my body honestly i haven't <laughs> well look even though players might not actually realize that they're invoking newton's laws of motion in their heads every time they kick a ball what is going on in their minds does have a very big impact on how they play and that's where sports psychologists come in with us is bradley bush he's a psychologist with the company inner drive and he's worked with lots of well-known clubs and players to try and improve their games over the years so how do they find you in the first place bradley and, and is this big business do you get a lot of requests to come and give advice hi chris yeah we do quite a lot of work in football generally players come to us one of two ways the first is either if they've been referred to us by a teammate um we've recently actually had quite a few players uh, approach us after they've read our book i release your inner drive and what we're actually seeing more and more recently is a number of players starting to work with us and be recommended by either people around them so people like their coaches or their agents and more and more actually their parents as well so who have you worked with who we might have heard of Due to confidentiality and psychologist ethics, we can't talk about some specific names, but we can talk about some of the clubs that they play for. So we work with players from Man United, from Tottenham, from West Ham. Got a couple who are going to be playing at the World Cup. Wow, so we're expecting great things then. No pressure on you, Bradley. Fingers crossed. Talking of pressure, um, arguably, and, and it always comes down to this, doesn't it, World Cup? Penalties. That must be something that, that strikers dread. 
some do. Some really relish it and look forward to taking centre stage and being the guy who takes the shot that wins the match for their country. So what do you do to, to help them to make sure that they don't fluff? There's actually quite a lot of research that actually probably isn't used as well as it should be around how teams can do better uh, at penalties for this World Cup. So, for example, we know that going first in a penalty shootout at the World Cup increases your chances of winning by about 20%. Really? Why? Generally speaking, it's, it's linked to stress. So, essentially, stress can really hinder performance. And going second, knowing that you, if you miss, your team is out, is more stressful than if you go first because you know that there's still another chance for your team to go through other stuff that we've seen uh, so looking at England um, and we tend to have one of the worst penalty records out of all the international teams no really <laughs> sure I think we have about a one in five record of winning penalty shootouts and what one study found was England players uh, rush their penalty kick after the referee blows his whistle far quicker than all the other countries so the reaction time between the referee blowing his whistle and them taking the penalty is about 0.2 seconds and just to kind of give that some comparison like Usain Bolt would be happy with that yeah. uh, but what does Germany start, like, do because Germany always characteristically beat us at penalties so what, do, do they pause for longer is that yeah, what you're saying and not even that much longer so uh, Spain used to have a similar problem but they've got better in the last few tournaments the top teams tend to weigh top teams in terms of penalty success tend to weigh about 0.8 to 1 second so not much longer but just having a moment to have a deep breath compose yourself essentially it seems that the England players historically have wanted to rush it uh, You're saying and we get peak out too the way. soon <laughs> yeah well I think they just kind of want to get out of the way really why does it make a difference if you delay? Uh, well, essentially, so penalty shootout is often not linked too much to ability because everyone has the ability at that level. Uh, it's often linked to stress. So, for example, anything you can do to reduce stress will help. So having a deep breath uh, and taking a moment to compose your thoughts. There's a big thing around focusing on what you want, not what you don't want. So, so for example, to give it kind of a step back from football, if I tell you to think of any fruit you want but don't think of a banana uh, first thing i'm unpeeling in my brain right is, uh, yeah and because generally speaking the way the brain works is we tend to not really register the word don't so much and so if the players are thinking don't miss don't hit it over don't be the guy who loses it for my team it brings all those thoughts the things they want to avoid to the forefront whereas if they can take a deep breath and focus on what they want as in pick their spot and not change their mind i think it will generally prove performance does it also help to make the goalie sweat a bit because all the time you're standing there not kicking the ball they are experiencing mounting stress levels which is going to put them off more the research today has focused more on what the impact has on the player taking the penalty however there is some really interesting stuff goalkeepers can do to increase their chances they found that if a goalie was to stay in the middle of the goal and actually not dive he'd actually be twice as likely to save the penalty <laughs> and the reason they don't do this is one of two reasons one is towards game theory which is kind of if you do that all the time people will know that and so it won't become effective but also <laughs> there's this concept called like an action bias where like people want to do things if i dive and i don't save it at least people would see that i've tried whereas the worry is if i stay in the middle and i don't save it i'll come in for the criticism so therefore it's the illusion of doing something often trumps the logical thing which would be to sometimes stand still so just very briefly for us bradley can you give us some bullet points of advice that you give top performers of how to be at the top of their game Sure, and a lot of the advice we give them comes from a range of... It's not just sports psychology, so it might come from educational psychology or neuroscience. So three 
top tips, I guess. Uh, one, uh, we teach play- players to focus on what they can control on the pitch, not what they can't change. So a lot of players might be tempted to focus on the stuff that they can't change, such as mistakes in the past or referee decisions or what the crowd are saying, whereas helping them be process-focused and focusing on their role, their responsibility and playing what they see, not getting too ahead of themselves and catastrophizing would be the first area. The second would be around helping people and athletes develop their self-talk. And when psychologists talk about self-talk, it's not really this cheesy, overly positive X factor just because you say you're good, somehow it makes you good. It's more about... Are you talking to yourself in a helpful or unhelpful way? Are you helping yourself give yourself instructions on what to do better? So essentially, if we were to write down everything you say to yourself and read it back to you, would that script be helpful or would it be something that hinders you? And just very briefly, the third one, quickly. Third one is helping athletes off the pitch improve their training mindset and resilience. So using uh, mistakes as learning curves, making sure they're focusing on development and not just short-term performance so that they get better over time. Sounds like wonderful advice we can apply right across the board, doesn't it? Thank you, Bradley. That's Bradley Bush. He is from Inner Drive. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Katie Haler. On the way, would alien life be edible? We'll get our teeth into that. Now, we've just been talking about the psychology of being a footballer, but what about the rest of us who stand around the pitch rather than on it? Why is football so popular? And why do people get so attached to certain teams to the extent that a loss match can really ruin your day or even lead to violence on some occasions? Sander van der Linden is a psychologist at Cambridge University. Sander, why do people get so fanatical about a football team? I think it all boils down to group psychology and identity. And so people derive meaning from belonging to different groups, and we define part of who we are by the groups that we belong to. And there's a very famous psychology experiment that was done in the 70s that uh, was called the minimal group paradigm. And so they were trying to figure out what are the minimal conditions for establishing group membership. And they found that using the most arbitrary criteria, uh, you can create categories of groups and people will slowly start identifying with those groups no matter how arbitrary they are. So for example, if I give half the the room a red t-shirt and half the room a yellow t-shirt, people who have the yellow Ah. t-shirt will start identifying with other people who are wearing yellow t-shirts, even though they have nothing in common with those individuals, and slowly start disliking the group with the red t-shirts. And this is how intergroup conflict gets started. Okay, so does this have anything to do with our evolutionary history then, this idea of being on one team and not being on the other? I think so. People evolved living in groups, and it's very normal. And these processes of categorization, identification, and comparison are um, are quite normal. I mean, we sort ourselves into groups, we identify with those groups, and then we start comparing ourselves with other groups. It's just that the structural conditions of football really enhance those uh, uh, characteristics. So you're wearing different t-shirts so it's mm-hmm. easy to spot the out-group member versus the in-group member. You're sitting on different sides, you're yelling at each other, so it really drives <laughs> up the ante. So... I mean, this can be so much fun, but sometimes you can get football hooliganism, football-related violence. Why is this an issue? What has this got to do with football? Well, I think the football as a sport 
really enhances this idea of uh, of group identification. So we belong to all all sorts of different groups, right? And so at work, when somebody says maybe you know something nasty about a coworker, you, you'll probably think, oh, that's that's not very nice. I know this person, and so on. But uh, when you so strongly identify with a group in the moment, when somebody insults your group, it's almost like they're insulting you personally. That's how strongly you've identified with uh, with the group. And so when oh, somebody okay. says something bad. That's how fights get started, and everyone sort of thinks as as one unit, and it becomes easy to to, to start a conflict. So essentially, you're not just dissing my team; you're dissing a part of me. That's exactly right. So, okay, on a more positive note, then, can being so into a football team be good for you? I think so. People really enjoy group activities. As I said, we've evolved living in groups. People enjoy being with other people. Social relationships are very important. People, the entertainment value is very high for people. It provides a relief from everyday stress. People, you know, if you look throughout human history, uh, people really enjoy group activities, and uh, it enhances our self-esteem and our well-being when when it doesn't get aggressive and violent. Uh, so I think on most occasions, it's a really enjoyable uh, activity for people. So is it good for your well-being if your team wins then? Depends on what your team is. <laughs> now, is football more popular with men than women? Is there any research to suggest a gender difference here? Well, if you look at surveys, I think, uh, yes. So the amount of interest expressed in football currently is higher among men, even though there's a very substantial portion of interest among females. But I don't think that's the case uh, because of any biological reason. Uh, you see that females are just as interested in football as men in in most sports, actually. I think there's just uh, structural barriers that include societal stereotypes that people have about football being a, a sort of a manly sport, uh, uh, biases and incentives. So sponsors tend to sponsor athletes whose uh, ratings and TV ratings are very high. And so if your sport is watched less, there's also less incentive to get, to get finances. If you look at Wimbledon, for example, I might be quoting the year, I think it was 2007, in which they started equalizing prize pay for uh, male and female tennis players. And so I think there, there were a lot of structural barriers that have caused inequalities, but there's nothing that inherently suggests that there are any gender differences in sports. Sander, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much. Sander van der Linden from Cambridge University. Now, we've heard about the psychology and the physics of football prowess, but is there anything in your genetic code that can reveal whether you're destined to play for your country, for example? Is there a football, a running or a rugby gene? Offering tests for this is actually becoming quite big business, but it's not actually based on sound science at all. And Georgia Mills spoke to Ian Varley, who's a lecturer in sport and exercise science at Nottingham Trent University, to hear why. There are lots of companies and it has become sort of in vogue in the last maybe five or six years, so very recent, that will test your genetics by sending you a saliva collection device through the post. You will simply spit into the capsule, send it back, and they will send you back um, some information on whether, maybe not on whether you're going to be a footballer or not, but whether you have the the particular genetic profile which um, makes you susceptible to being maybe a more power-based athlete. In football, that might be a centre-forward or something like that, or maybe a more endurance-based athlete, maybe more midfield player, you could say. Right. And is there evidence that there can be a, a midfielder gene? Unfortunately not. As you can probably imagine, genetics is very complex. So being able to identify a particular gene which says that you are a midfield player or you're going to be a good footballer in any position is very, very complex. So to put this into perspective, 
There is about, or it was recently identified, maybe about five or six years ago, there is about just under 300,000 genes or genetic variants which can allude to 45% of the difference in height. So something as simple <laughs> as height that everyone takes for granted that is hereditary trait, there's 300,000 different um, variants. If you consider being something as complex as football with all the different things that are putting to being an elite footballer, obviously it's, it seems an oversimplification of that one or even 10 or maybe 100 different genetic variants can almost predict that. There's not been a study that I know of in the, the recent published literature that has showed any predictive quality of a genetic test. So there is no study that has genotyped a load of children and then shown that these children are going to be footballers and these children aren't going to be footballers. So there's no predictive quality in sporting settings. There have been association studies. However, the utility of those association studies is, is lacking, unfortunately. Is there then a problem with these tests and could they do any damage? Potentially, yes. The problem that could arise from these things is people that maybe aren't experts in science looking at the marketing material released by these companies, showing that maybe they, if they train in a certain way, they could be better or how they can predict sporting prowess. They take those particular tests and they're normally aimed at sort of coaches and parents, really. And they give their child or their team a particular avenue to go down in terms of training or sport that is maybe not ideal for that participant. Maybe they don't like that particular sport, but they've got the supposed genetic profile, which makes them susceptible to or in theory susceptible to being an expert in that particular sport. So this can lead to, I suppose, a lack of choice for that child so it restricts um, the child's lack to an open future which brings in sort of human rights issues and there's also moral issues within this as well we're going on some science that is, is by no means concrete in the way that it's been conducted and i suppose there might be an element of the self-fulfilling prophecy if you're told that you are genetically not cut out to be good at this sport you you're not going to put your heart and soul into it are you of course. And if you're told that oh, you're, you're never going to be good at this because you've got this particular genetic profile, that obviously brings that on, like you say, with this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. I, I'm not good at that because I was told that a, a young child, I would never, I didn't have the gene to be a midfield player. I'm, or, and I should be a goalkeeper or whatever it might be, which when we say it like that, sounds a bit ridiculous uh, to saying you've got the gene for a goalkeeper. I guess with any sport, actually, you've got your genetics but then there's also your life you've had since you were born is going to have a big impact and your training and the environment and all those kinds of things. Of course so there's obviously been a, an age-old debate going on since before I was born on whether someone is an elite sports person due to nature or whether it's due to nurture and I suppose the boring answer is that it's probably a bit of both and people don't like that answer, bit of both, um, because it's sort of sitting on the fence. But if you look at the science, it seems to suggest that there is some element of training. You need to train obviously hard to be good, but there is also an element of genetics as well. And in some cases, I'll take myself as a perfect example. I'm sure I could train all I wanted to, and I would never have been um, an elite footballer. Even with the best coaches in the world, I didn't have the, the sort of the genetics, if you like, um, to, to excel in that particular sport. And we all know that person, that infuriating person who tries something for the first time and they're amazing at it and you want to throttle them. 
Of course, yes. There's one of those in every school, I think. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, who tends to, yes, pick, picks up a cricket bat and is excellent and they can do the same with a football, a rugby ball or excellent. So a multi-talented sports person because they have got what it takes, whatever that thing is, that enables them to be good at those things. There's also examples of that person that tries really hard. So the person that comes to your sports club every week and tries their best with all the best coaching to try and be elite and unfortunately they're never any good. I think that's Uh, me you're describing that. I always got the medal for turning up, I think. (laughs) I didn't even get the medal for turning up. I got the medal for bunking off to try and get out of it. Were were you a keen sportswoman at school and university? Um, I do like sport. I think I was more of a well done you've participated than a well done you've won. uh... It just didn't come naturally to me. I like snooker actually. There's a lot of physics in that. I like to watch snooker. But um, I'm certainly not very good at playing sport. I haven't got those genes. That was Ian Varley. He's at Nottingham Trent University. He was talking with Georgia Mills. So just do the sport you love, I think, is the message there. And as long as you're having fun and getting some exercise, that's probably the best thing. You you agree with that? I do, definitely. Having fun is very important. And now for question of the week. The idea of leaving Earth in last week's show must have inspired someone because we have this alien-related question from Eamon that Marika Ottman has been looking into. If someday we managed to travel to another planet and discovered aliens, what is the likelihood that we could eat them? Something about humanity is that when we come across something, we'll usually try to eat it. But could we eat alien life? On the forum, Evan AU points out that there's probably the same chance that aliens could eat us as there is that we could eat them. But that doesn't mean we could get nutrients from them. And Bored Chemist reminds us of an old and very wise statement, all mushrooms are edible once. But what if we found alien life on another planet? Would we even be able to make a dinner out of that? I put this question to Gareth Corbett, gastroenterologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge, to see if he had any food for thought. There are a number of theories regarding the basis of life on other planets. It is almost inconceivable that given the vastness of the universe, there is not extraterrestrial life. On Earth, carbon is the key constituent of all life due to the perfect conditions that allow the formation of long carbon chain molecules which make up all life as we know it. But there may be other ways to form life, with silicon and nitrogen being commonly cited as potential elements to base alien life around, due to their chemical bonding similarities to carbon. However, it will be life, Jim, but not as we know it. If we were able to take them from their environment to eat, the chemical structure of silicon-based organic molecules would not be digestible by our digestive tracts, and indeed regular dosing of silicon would likely be toxic to our bodies. If we were to encounter carbon-based plants and animals, we would be likely to be able to physically consume them. Mm. The problem is, our bodies have evolved over millions of years on this planet to be able to digest the very complex proteins that exist here. Some molecules can have the exact same elements in them, but are actually mere images of one another, just like your left and right hand. Lemons and oranges both get their taste from mere images of the same compound, limonene. All of our proteins and sugars have this property of handedness, and our digestive system has evolved to expect them to be that way. Our enzymes might not be the right shape to combine with alien molecules, like a right hand trying to go into a left-handed glove. However, just to finish, while discussing this with my father-in-law, he simplified the issue for us. Just pop in a bit of garlic butter and it will taste fine. Thanks, Gareth, for giving us something to chew over. Next week, we're staying in space as we answer this question from Chris Taylor. If there's no gravity in space, then how do astronauts weigh things? 
Hmm. Well, we'll be finding out next week. And if you think you know the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join in the debate on the forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum. And that is it for this week. Thank you very much to Georgia Mills for putting the programme together. And do tune in next week when it's Q&A time. We'll be joined by a psychologist, a physicist, and even a science stand-up who are going to be answering your science questions. If you'd like to send one in, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.